All right, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, you will turn to. Uh, back in uh, 2006, uh, at the um, Olympic uh, Winter Games in Turin, Italy, uh, at the opening ceremonies, they had a number of speakers come out, and one of those speakers, uh, her name was uh, Yoko Ono. You guys probably heard, know who Yoko Ono is. She's the wife of the late, great uh, John Lennon, although my wife thinks he's great. I, I don't know if I think he's great, but um, don't really love John Lennon music all that much. Anyway, um, she, got to, she got to speak, and here's what she said. She said these words, imagine peace. You may think, well... How are we going to get one billion people in the world to think peace? Because if one billion people in the world think peace, we will get peace. Remember, each one of us has the power to change the world. Power works in mysterious ways. You don't have to do much. Visualize the domino effect and just start thinking peace. The message will circulate faster than you think. It's time for action. It's time for action, and action is peace. Spread the word. Spread peace. As my husband and partner John Lennon said, imagine all the people living life in peace. Thank you. I love you. And her speech was over. Uh, Ever the optimist, Yoko Ono and uh, John Lennon were stalwart proponents of peace. When, um, especially when John Lennon was around, he was writing songs about it. They represent the human urge for peace in our world. It's a human longing. Peace is one of those things everyone longs for, but nobody knows exactly how to get it. It's a hard thing to get. It's the cliche answer at the end of the beauty pageant, right? What do you wish for the world? World peace. That's the speech, right, that every beauty queen gives? It's the longing of every parent on a noisy car ride. (laughs) Am I right? All I want is some peace and quiet, right? How many parents have said those words before? I said them the other day, like verbatim, actually spoke them out loud and thought, oh, no, I am my dad. (laughs) But I finally understand him. Um, I think whether you're a Christian or not, you know, we all share in this longing for peace. Our culture, though, has a very different understanding of what peace is than what we find in the pages of Scripture. Uh, There was a guy named Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was a famous writer uh, in the early 1800s, and he used to be a minister, a pastor, um, but he left the ministry because he was frustrated with its abuses and... um, he kind of went and lived out in the bush and, and wrote a lot of poetry and, and contemplated his inner self a lot, and, and he became kind of known for something new called transcendentalism. He was a proponent of transcendentalism. And he wrote, uh, he, here's a quote from him. He said, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing can bring you peace but yourself. That's the kind of mantra that resonates with people today. People are, are looking for peace. Here's a few book titles I looked up on Amazon. I Am Peace, that was a book title. Daily Peace, The Art of Peace. Searching for and Maintaining Peace, 10 Secrets for Success in Inner Peace. Dalai Lama's Little Book of Inner Peace, The Little Book of Inner Inner Peace, and Finding Inner Peace. People are looking for inner 
peace. In our world's understanding of peace, peace is something we find through stillness, reflection, soft music maybe, exercise, looking within. People are taking charge of trying to find peace, going to things like yoga and tai chi and other exercises so they can find this. And there's much to applaud about our culture's understanding of caring for our bodies and our souls. There's much there that we can agree with as Christians Caring for your body will affect your soul. There is, they are interconnected. Who has not experienced peace to some level by slowing down, by spending time outside, by listening to beautiful music, by spending time in exercise or recreation? These are gifts from God. They no doubt have benefits for our minds, our bodies, and our souls. In the Bible, the Hebrew word uh, for peace is shalom. And the Greek word is irene which translated uh, in Latin is, is where we get the word peace. It's the Latin word pax. But in this idea of shalom, uh, this is not just uh, the absence of conflict. It's actually the presence of well-being, of completeness, of wholeness. And that certainly includes your body. The Jews would bless each other. You know, may you be blessed in body and in soul. Your body's part of that. And so we can agree with that. To have shalom means that something that is broken is restored to its original state. However, in the modern understanding of peace, there is a subtle but dangerous idea that peace can originate from within ourselves. To suggest that peace can originate from within is also to believe that human beings are good at their core. And don't miss that. If you're going to find peace within by looking within, that means that there's something good in there to come out, something basically good, a peaceful river within of tranquility and calm, and your job is to find that river. It is here that the biblical notion of peace actually diverges like a river from our culture's understanding. God's Word tells us that peace is not something that originates from within. It's something that is bestowed upon us by God. To have peace is to experience wholeness, restoration, and only God can give that. In the beginning of creation, there was perfect shalom, The world was in a state of perfect well-being and prosperity. It was whole. It was complete. But the Bible's message to us is that we, not God, are the ones who started a war. We started a war with God and with each other and with all of creation. Humanity is at war with God. Mankind has rebelled against God and shalom has been broken. A broken relationship with God has led to a broken relationship with each other and that is a result of fallen humanity. Individuals and communities are not in a state of shalom, but the world is fractured by sin. Charles Spurgeon uh, described the human condition like this. He said, by nature... Everything in our inner nature is at war with itself. It is a cage of 
evil beasts all tearing and devouring each other. Man is out of order, out of order with God, with the universe, and with himself. The machinery of manhood has fallen to serious disorder. Listen to the image that he gives. Its cogs and wheels do not work in due harmony, but they miss their touch and stroke. What this means is that peace is not something we can achieve on our own through human effort. Humanity does not have the resources to bring about peace in any way. We are only capable of looking at peace with longing. Like Scrooge looks in at the Cratchits having Christmas dinner from the window. Christians ought not to be deceived into thinking that they can find peace within by looking within. We are unable to achieve peace with God, peace with others, peace in our world, ourselves. Waldo Emerson was wrong. You cannot find peace by looking at yourself. It's actually impossible. James 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James understands the human heart. We're at war even within ourselves. But into this bleak picture, and it is bleak, comes the Christmas story. God promised through the prophet Isaiah to send a prince who would bring peace on earth, peace to mankind, peace to our world. A prince who would restore humanity, bringing well-being and wholeness to the world, and that includes our bodies and our soul. The Christmas story begins with the angel Gabriel visiting an old priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest, and he's uh, given an opportunity to go into the temple and to make, you know, do his priestly duties, offer sacrifice. And this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. And so as he's chosen, he walks in and begins to do his duties. And then suddenly there's this angel standing beside him. And he's freaked out. And the angel says, don't be afraid. And he gives him this news that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, who's in her old age, is going to have a son. They've been longing for a son for years, this couple. And they didn't have one. And and they were going to have a son, and he was going to be special. He would be a forerunner for the Messiah. He would prepare God's people for Jesus. And Zachariah says, "Uh, have you seen how old my wife is? (laughs) Uh, How can this be? And he doesn't believe. And God takes away his speech, and Zechariah lives for the next nine months without being able to speak, but then when his son is born, they name him John, and in that moment, God loosens Zechariah's tongue, and he can speak again, and then he begins to sing. And here's what he says at the end of his song in Luke 1, verse 79. He says that the Messiah will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's what he's come to bring, peace. And we're going to look at how Jesus did that in people's lives. 
We want to look this morning at a story of him doing that in the life of this woman in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. A woman of the city and a Pharisee is what this story is all about. So if you look with me, Luke 7, verse 36. Let's read the story together. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, that's Jesus, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears And she wiped them with her hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to look at that last line. Your faith has saved you. That's peace with God. We're going to talk about that first. Peace with God. Go in peace. That's the peace of God. What does that look like? Um, let's talk about peace with God first. The story uh, contrasts two characters. There's a woman of the city and a Pharisee. And it comes at the end of the, a section in the Gospel of Luke where people have been asking this question, who is this Jesus guy and what can he do? Uh, the story begins when a Pharisee, Simon, invited Jesus over to his house. And I want you to just notice that because... Uh, us who go to church a lot, like we know about Pharisees, right? Like we don't want to be a Pharisee. If there's anything Christians don't want to be, right? It's a Pharisee. And rightly so. And yet notice that a Pharisee has invited Jesus over. He showed some kind of hospitality. 
I mean, Jesus had usually had many harsh words for Pharisees, and he, he did condemn much of what they did, but not every Pharisee was like outside of God's mercy. Uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he had an openness to learn from Jesus, and he watched Jesus' life, and at the end, when, he, when Jesus was dead, uh, Nicodemus came to believe, and he gathered up the body with Joseph, and he, he had Jesus buried. The Pharisee in this story, Simon, also seems to have some sort of openness to hear from Jesus. He shows him a sign of hospitality and invites him over. However, Simon is still a Pharisee, and he thinks like a Pharisee, and he acts like a Pharisee, but he is not beyond mercy, and we're going to see that. Jesus reclines at Simon's table, and Luke tells us that a woman of the city who was a sinner enters the room, and she wipes his feet with tears, she anoints his feet with oil, she kisses his feet. She's at his feet, which is what a disciple does with Jesus. And these were all acts of hospitality, very extravagant acts of hospitality that show her inner heart of gratitude, of worship, of love, and also remorse for her past life. It is likely this woman was engaged in prostitution of some kind. Luke gives us the sense that she's not ceremonially unclean, she's morally unclean. She has done immoral acts in her life that have left her not only feeling dirty, but, but sinful, covered with sin, sinful choices. Um, verse 47 indicates that she had a great debt. And Simon's reaction to her shows that he considered this woman to be a scandalous person who Jesus should not associate with. He should actually be disgusted with her. Simon thinks. In fact, to her, the fact that she's even touching Jesus is enough for Simon to say, oh, he must not be from God if he's touching this woman. Doesn't he know who this is? He would believe that this woman would defile this holy man. But the opposite is true. Jesus knew that this woman, though she had sinned, she was not unlike all of humanity, and she had also been sinned against. She was broken by others. She had been shamed by others. She was treated as less than human. She was thrown aside and rejected by the community. Jesus looked at Simon and said, Simon, do you see this woman? Not a Gentile, not an outcast, not an animal, not a nuisance. A woman, a human being, do you see her? You could ask that question for all of us this morning who would call on Jesus as our Savior. Do we see people when we come across them? You may not be able to help every single person you come across, but do you see a person? Do you see a nuisance? Or do you see a thing? Do we see people? Made in the image of God. Jesus knew Simon's thoughts. And then he tells him a story. And what was the point of the story? It was that, don't you dare look down on her, Simon, because you both have debts you cannot pay. 
Sure, her debts seem greater, and outwardly they look worse, but don't kid yourself, Simon. You both are in debt. In fact, Simon, you are in a more dangerous position because you think that you're holy enough on your own. But this woman who you despise, she is forgiven because she has faith in me and she knows that I have the power to forgive and restore her. Jesus wants to forgive and restore people. He wants to do it for this woman, and he does. And he also wants to do it for Simon. But Simon's problem is that he doesn't see the need. He doesn't see the need. If you and I want to experience peace with God... We must first recognize our need for forgiveness and restoration. The woman sees her need, and Simon does not. And what the story is saying is that beginning a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with God, looks more like this woman than it does like Simon the Pharisee. When you're willing to admit who you are and what you've done, and then understand that Jesus still loves you, even though you've done all that stuff, that he still loves you, oh, that is the gospel. And to some, it's scandalous. But Jesus sees us, and he wants to forgive us. And then this woman, her response is remorse and gratefulness and love and worship. And Simon's is just being polite with Jesus, you know? Yeah, like hanging out with Jesus. Cool, but I'm not like as sinful as that lady or that guy or whoever. I'm pretty good. I'm a little bit a cut above everybody else. Simon is polite, but she is remorseful. Maybe you know about Jesus and you treat him a lot like Simon did. And you've never actually experienced remorse over sin or a lack... And maybe you lack affection for Jesus. And maybe you lack gratitude for him. And that might be a sign that you don't actually know him. And furthermore, it is probably a sign that you don't know yourself. You have drunk in the cultural message, the Kool-Aid, that says you're good enough on your own. And one of the greatest lies people believe today is that we as humanity are basically good people. I mean, you guys have been watching the news, right? Like, there's been all these uh, sexual misconduct uh, and harassment cases in the news and high-profile people in Hollywood and in politics and in the news have been getting caught and they're apologizing for their behavior. But then a lot of the time you hear this. I'm sorry, but this is not a reflection of who I am. They're caught, red-handed, but it's not who I am. And before we pile on them, I mean, we all, we all do that, right? Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You bear bad fruit, you're a diseased tree. Like, there's something wrong at the core that makes that all come out. The evil things we do are a reflection of who we are. 
When I yell at my kids, I am not acting out of character, I am acting in character. When I steal dignity from others, it's because I'm a dignity stealer. That's who I am at my core, and I need that to be restored and redeemed and forgiven. R.C. Sproul um, passed away this last week. He was a theologian, a great uh, defender of, of classical Christianity, and he was a, a, a joyful man, a happy man. But if, if you've never heard of R.C. Sproul, I, I just like, encourage you, go and Google R.C. Sproul, okay? Your, your day will go great, although he will maybe gut punch you, and here's... He's an old guy, but he, he, can throw a punch, you know, he can throw a gospel punch. And here's what he said about the gospel. He said, the gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. The gospel is not be good and be moral people. That is not the gospel. If you, look, if you think that Christianity is just about, hey, so I can be good and moral, that is not Christianity. Christianity is, I am not good and moral. I need Jesus. And he will make me into something new. That's the gospel. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against one another. But God knows that, and he loves us anyway. The woman in the story does not need to be convinced of this. She knows. And because she knows that, she's able to see the stunning good news that though she is a mess, do any of you feel that way? Do you feel like a mess? Take heart. There's no shalom or peace in your life. Jesus has the power to forgive you and restore you again. To be forgiven and restored is to experience the greatest peace we can possibly have, peace with God. Peace with God. C.S. Lewis said, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. He's the God of peace who will give us peace. Now, for many of you in the room, let's move on to the peace of God. Uh, You know about that peace. You've experienced that peace. You surrendered your life to Jesus maybe years ago, maybe recently. And you've been walking on this journey with Jesus. And, you know, you look back at your life and you're thankful. You're thankful for God saving you. You're thankful for his grace. You're thankful for that joy. And you need to hang on to that, and we're going to talk about that. But perhaps your struggle is just daily living. Like, how do I really believe that I can go in peace, like this woman was told by Jesus? Go in peace. It sounds so easy. But we know life is hard. How do we walk with peace every day? How do we walk in the peace of God that he's come to bring us? The end of the story, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Walk in peace. Live in peace. But she was saved, past tense. Maybe you're saved, past tense, but you're struggling with how to have peace every day, how to walk in that. But Jesus' message is not to kind of conjure it up yourself. His message is, you've been restored. Now walk in that restoration. This is who you are now, so walk like that's true. And part of his work in our life is to remind us of what he's already done. Some might object and they say, yeah, I mean, that sounds great. Like, live in peace, go in peace, as if that were possible. (laughs) I mean, have you met my kids? Like, they are a chaos. They're, They're just a flurry of activity and, like, it's just stressful in our house. 
Maybe you're like, hey, have you met my parents? Or my friends at school? Or my coworkers? Or my, just my job itself? It, it's just stressful and I am not at peace. I know Jesus, I love Jesus, but man, I am stressed. And I'm not experiencing that. Well, take heart. <laughs> we all have these anxieties, these fears, these sins that bubble up. And some days we do feel a bit like the Israelites, you know, when they left Egypt, right? And then after they left, they were like, well, this is hard. We're out here in this desert. You know, we should just go back to Egypt when they were beating on us and stuff. That was better. And maybe some days you're like that. You're like, man, following Jesus is really hard. I didn't think it was going to be this hard. Man, life was better before. And maybe you long back for those days, the good old days. But I want to give you three things to meditate on this morning in regards to the peace of God. Number one, peace has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end, like a good story. Salvation in the Bible is spoken of in three ways, okay? You need to get this. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Past tense, Ephesians 2.5. By grace you have been saved. That's a fact. It's a reality if you know Jesus. You are saved. Present tense. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. They've been saved. They're now being saved by the gospel. This is an ongoing process for God's people. Until future tense, Acts 15.11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter said, Peter already believed. He said, but we will be saved. Salvation is like a race. You begin, you run it, you finish it. Peace is part of our experience of salvation. In Christ, we are given peace. We can experience peace now, and one day we will see peace perfected. But since we are in the middle of that process, we can expect that we will go deeper in our peace, but we will also not expect it to be perfect until the end. You begin the race and you run it. And then as you're running it, you get leg cramps. And, you know, you hurt. I was in a race one time and, man, I just started going, like, really hard. I was like, this is pretty easy. And then, like, 10 minutes in, oh, I can't get through. And I thought I was going to die. And then near the end of my first lap, my friends came up to me and they were like, hey, and they just sprayed me with water and they were encouraging me. And, and I felt this, you know, resurgence of energy and strength. And that's kind of what it's like living this life. We get low, but then we need to get brought back again and reminded I can, I can do it because Jesus is in me. This has a couple other applications. Uh, point number two. Peace with God means war with our enemy. You may have peace with God, but you are now at war with someone else. 
You know, it's like before you started that race, you know, your enemy was just kind of sitting on the sidelines and he was like, hey man, like they're a lost cause. And then you, jo- you joined into the race, you got into the battle and now your enemy is like, I'm going to get them. You got a target on your back. And if you don't believe me, let's read uh, Ephesians chapter 6, okay? <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What did he mean by that? He didn't mean he wasn't the prince of peace. He meant that if you are now at peace with him, it will make you an enemy of somebody else. And I want you to get this. Our enemy is not people. People who wrong you, do evil things to you. They maybe are the human embodiment. They're the tool that the enemy is using. But you have a greater enemy behind that. And you have to see that. Or else you will you'll attack people. We're not after people. We're for people. And our fight is much greater than that. Third, we're called to fight for peace. And that means even peace within. That's an irony. That's an oxymoron, right? It's like jumbo shrimp. (laughs) Fight for peace. (laughs) That sounds weird. I have to fight for peace? Yeah, that's the great irony of it all. We have to fight for peace. For so many of us, uh, we, we've, we feel this battle daily in our own soul, this fight, sometimes to get up in the morning. We're in the middle of a battle. How do we stand tall? How do we stand strong like a lighthouse as the, ocean's wa- you know, the ocean waves crash against that lighthouse that it still stands tall and solid and shines a light for Jesus? How do we be those people? Philippians 4 verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer. He's going to give us an answer here, Paul. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The other morning I was laying in bed and, you know, just waking up and If you know anything about me, I mean, I just, my mind is always going. And sometimes those thoughts turn into worries and fears, and before I even get out of bed, I am stressed. You guys know what I'm talking about. How do I I get through that? And then the Lord was so gracious to me the other day as I was preparing for this. He reminded me, prayer. That's what Paul is saying to us. Turn that into prayer. Pray. And man, did that make a difference. I started just speaking those things out to the Lord. All those things that are in my head. I mean, he knows they're there. I can be honest with him about them. And man, that peace comes. I'm not 
searching for peace. I'm looking to Christ and the peace comes. Not even when I get an answer to my prayer. It's just lofting them up there and being thankful. That's when the peace comes, Paul says. The Apostle Paul says we have a choice when those anxieties rise. We can turn them into thankful prayer and experience God's transcending peace guarding us from destructive ideas and thoughts that want to conquer us. Paul gives us more ammunition a few verses later. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, or sorry, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is your mind thinking about? What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. The things you know that you've learned, obey them. And the God of peace will be with you. What we think and what we do matters in experiencing God's peace. Paul is talking about seizing control of the mental battle of spiritual forces waging inside of you that affect your soul. And we can begin to experience God's peace when we think of good and worthy things. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones is an old preacher, he's, he's uh, long dead, but uh, he was a preacher in London, and he was a medical doctor before God called him to be a pastor. And he wrote a book, he did a series once called Spiritual Depression. And he was unpacking Psalm 42, where the psalmist is depressed and saying, how long, O Lord? And why am I downcast? And so here's Martin Lloyd-Jones' insight. Here's what he says. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this is man's treatment. This man's treatment in the psalm was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he started talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you do that? Do you do that? Lloyd-Jones goes on to talk about the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself. Look, if you're a Christian, you're also a preacher. And sometimes you just got to preach to yourself. Your own heart. Remind yourself that Jesus loves you and he has forgiven you and who you are in him. When you fail and fall, remember just as Frodo had Sam to care for him on the journey, Jesus is on the journey with you. He wants to give you encouragement along the way. There's a New Zealand uh, musical artist that just put this together in just a beautiful way. His name's Strahan, and um, you can look him up. Here's what he said about our, our fight as Christians. He said, this war is love. It's not a bad fight. It's a good fight. This war is love. So is the standard of our God. Fought in prayer and not in blood. The Son made a way for us in love. 
That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, right? Christ came. He is our peace. In prayer, we look to him. We remember that he has won the battle and he will continue to win those daily battles. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for Christmas. God, thank you for your mercy. That God, at Christmas, you sent your son Jesus to be our Prince of Peace. God, would you help those who have never experienced this peace today, God, to long for and find that peace today. God, may they see that they are lost without you and that, God, you long for them to come to you. Thank you for your love and your grace. And God, for my brothers and sisters who know this battle well, Lord, would you go with them? Would you help them today to go in peace and to fight those daily battles, Lord, to fight for peace? And Father, I pray that they would see that you are faithful. God, we thank you for your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.